Would you take your Bible with me and turn this morning to John, John's Gospel, John chapter 4. We're beginning the fourth chapter in John's Gospel this morning. Um, John chapter 4, we're just going to look at the first six verses here in John chapter 4 and read those. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a few back there still on the table right behind the door. Feel free at any point to pick one of those up and to so that you can have these words in front of you as I, as I read them and as we study them and consider them deeply together. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, there are a handful of uh, uh, copies underneath the giving table back there. Go ahead and grab one. Um, that's our gift to you uh, this morning. John chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. As we've spent time together in John's Gospel, we've explored some really serious truths about who Jesus is. Um, we've explored some really high and important thoughts, and we've honed in throughout our time, especially early in uh, the first 18 verses of John's Gospel, um, we honed in on what, Jesus, what makes Jesus unique. And we explored a little bit more of that last week, as we, or two weeks ago, excuse me, as we considered John the Baptist's view of Jesus. He has this interaction with his own disciples. Um, and the, the famous verse in, in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 30, where John the Baptist says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And this just points to Jesus' vast superiority and his absolute supremacy. There is no one who, uh, who even comes close to the person of Jesus Christ based on what has been uh, communicated to us so far in John's Gospel in the first three chapters. We've learned that Jesus is, we've learned a ton of things, but, but Jesus is from above, specifically Two weeks ago, Jesus is from above, and no one other than Jesus can speak about heavenly things because he is the one who came down from heaven. And Jesus brings the truth with him from heaven. He bears witness to the truth and that there is no truth apart from Jesus Christ. And Jesus will tell us later in the gospel in John chapter 14, when we finally get there, that, uh, that, uh, that he is, in fact, the truth. Jesus has been given all authority. There is nothing that Jesus doesn't rule over. Verse 35 of chapter 3, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Abraham Kuyper famously said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of, of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Everything that we are and everything that we have falls under the Lordship of Jesus, Jesus Christ. And we need to have these high thoughts about Jesus. And largely the first three chapters of John's Gospel give us these high thoughts. We have a lot of, of really important information given to us that is meant to transform us more into the image 
of Jesus Christ so that we might praise Him and honor Him for who He is. This is John's goal, goal throughout much of his, uh, the beginning of his Gospel. Jesus is the only one who deserves our undivided attention. But, when we get to chapter 4, things shift a little bit, and another aspect of who Jesus is comes into clear view. And these six verses that I just read, we might, they, they are set up into a larger story, into a story that we're mostly familiar with, in the, the, the Samaritan woman at the well. But the reason I don't want to just jump into that story without first exploring these six verses is because there's some really important things that we can learn from these verses. Uh, ancient societies had a lot of mythology. Um, they had a lot of, uh, of, of gods. They had a pantheon of gods, we might say. and they, These gods were constructed to explain certain historical events or uh, what, who needed to be appeased in order that it might rain. We had to give a sacrifice to a specific god to, to gain something for our city or something specific that we need. And in ancient societies, the stories would go that these gods would walk amongst humans. They would spend time amongst uh, mankind. And they would project a human form so that men and women like you and me wouldn't know that they were gods. But the stories where these, where these gods were the main characters, or even secondary characters, they spend a lot of time making sure that we know that they're not actually human. That they're not actually men or women. But they are more. We have these mythologies in our culture also. Consider like Superman, right? Superman is a mythological creature. He's a person. He comes from Krypton. He doesn't come from Earth. He's not a man in the way that we are men and women. Uh, he looks like a man from Earth. I mean, he's really jacked, and I couldn't pass for him, but, but he's, a, he's a man nonetheless. Even if I hit the gym and looked like Superman uh, physically, I couldn't fly or burn you with my laser eyes or anything like that. But even in, the, in comic books, right, like we're, we're, we're reminded frequently that he is something else. He is something other. He is not a man like you and I. Our mythologies want us to know, while these deities look like men, they aren't. This is what I want to point out this morning to you in these six verses, is that this passage doesn't do that. This passage doesn't make sure. It, it, it's a little bit jarring because all of the sudden, we, we hone in on something very specific about Jesus. In these six verses, we learn that Jesus took a trip, and so he got tired, and so he rested. And there, there's no but here. There's no but given. It's not but, but Jesus uh, summoned supernatural strength to carry on. Or but he quickly transported himself to his destination in Galilee. He just got tired and stopped to rest. Jesus got tired and he stopped to rest. And if you hear me say one thing this morning, hear me say this, Jesus got tired. And he stopped to rest. Just like we might be challenged by the notion that Jesus has authority over all things and has existed in eternity past, 
And affirming that doesn't quite compute in our minds as we try to logic through it, and yet it's the truth. Just as it might be challenged by the fact that Jesus is God who took on flesh to dwell amongst creatures, we should equally be challenged by the fact that Jesus got tired and he stopped to rest. Through this truth, we begin to see that Jesus is, in fact, totally man. We affirm what we saw early in in John's Gospel. We would have no problem saying Jesus is totally God. But as opposed to ancient mythologies that would, at this juncture, try to be convincing us that they are gods and not men, John doesn't try to convince us that Jesus isn't man. And so we then affirm that Jesus is both totally God and totally man. He contains this within himself. Before we move on into this text, before we really dive into that idea of Jesus' total manhood, I want to explore a couple truths, or one truth really, just that's embedded early in the first three verses here. That's really going to help us understand better why, why this is necessary. Why the communication about Jesus stopping to rest at a well is necessary. And why it encourages us and should spur us on. The truth that I want to explore in the first three verses here is the irreducible importance of the cross. Now, we're like 16, 15, 16 chapters away from the cross in John's Gospel, but a lot of what happens here is already directing us towards the cross. We saw that as early as chapter 2, or really a chapter 1, when Jesus is the plan for redemption for God's people. And that points us directly to the cross of Christ. But here, I want you to see the irreducible importance of the cross. And again, a couple weeks ago, when we were thinking about John the Baptist and his ministry, uh, he was gaining a big following. Jesus was, that is, gaining a big following. And, and the disciples of John the Baptist, uh, they, they, uh, they thought to themselves, why is this happening? And many of those who were followed, because many of those who were following John the Baptist started to follow Jesus. They started to follow Jesus. And John the Baptist then emphasized, I read verse 30 in chapter 3 a moment ago, John the Baptist began to emphasize that Jesus is greater. And so therefore, it would not be the natural of order, order of things for, for men and women to follow me when Jesus stood on the, the Judean countryside. Jesus should increase, and John the Baptist says very clearly that he should decrease. But here at the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus does something surprising, I think, to me at least. He walks away from this growing following. He just walks away. Now, there's a reason given here, um, but we need to also glean from this that just having a bigger following wasn't the goal for Jesus. Just gaining a bunch of people. Uh, to, to, to be with him wasn't the, wasn't the goal. So the reason that's given here is because the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. And so immediately their eyes are drawn to him. 
Their eyes were drawn to Jesus. What is this about? What's going on here? And this prompts Jesus to leave Judea and head north to Galilee. Why would Jesus leave when more and more people were coming to him? Why would he just leave this behind, his place where he was here in Judea? Because I think my initial thought is like, who cares about the Pharisees? There's a bunch of haters, right? Like you go gain a big following and do, do the thing. But, but what we learn here is that having a bigger following wasn't the goal for Jesus. Jesus came to do something very specific. He came to accomplish redemption for God's people. That's what he came to do. And, and that time hadn't yet come. It wasn't there yet. We got 15-ish chapters to go. That time hadn't come yet. And Jesus knew the Pharisees, who had already come to question him on one occasion, were going to do it again. And if a big following was the goal, Jesus wouldn't have cared about what they thought or what they said. But the goal was the cross. And that time had not yet come. I don't know about you, but that exposes something in me. Um, I think that when we explored John's disciples' reaction to the followers of John the Baptist going to Jesus, it showed us that, uh, um, that we like the idea of having more because we define success as having more, as having more than the next guy or having more than we have currently. And I like the idea of having more. I like the idea of being light. I like the idea of having a big impact. But what we find here is that Jesus, as his following was growing, and he was baptizing, making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, Jesus doesn't compromise his ultimate goal for these things. We see the same thing in the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And uh, the, what we learn here is that the proclamation of the gospel is the goal for every believer. The proclamation of the gospel is the goal for every believer. For Christ didn't send you or I to, uh, to make more money or to, uh, to live a comfortable life or gain a big following on social media or to be left alone or pick a personal goal that you might have. Christ didn't send you to do that. He sent you to proclaim the gospel. Now, none of those things I mentioned are bad unless they become higher goals than proclaiming the gospel in the way you live and the way you speak. And Jesus commands the church to baptize, right? So we see this, like, Jesus steps away from this ministry of baptism. And John the Baptist is like, well, I'm baptizing, but these people are going over here. Jesus commands the church to baptize. Jesus may have set you on a path and given you the ability to accomplish a bunch of personal goals, but none of those should have ever taken the place of the highest goal given by God to every Christian to proclaim gospel. We must not think that gaining a big following for Jesus was the goal. He walked away from it. And we also learn that he didn't baptize anyone himself. His disciples did. Like You see that right there in verse 2. 
And I want to chase that for a second, because what do we make of something like that? What do we make of a statement like that? What do we make of a statement that you find in parenthesis if you're reading the ESV like I am? Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Many in our culture rely on their baptism for salvation. Many in our culture rely on their baptism for salvation. They think that the act of baptism in some sense or for some period of time grants them, saves them from sin and death and grants them eternal life. And, and this simply can't be the case because verse 2 is in our Bible. It can't, it can't be the case. Because if it were the case, and if we are saved through being baptized, then Paul would not so openly admit that he did not baptize many people in 1 Corinthians, and, uh, and Jesus would have not left this growing ministry that he had in the Judean countryside. Because to not baptize someone would be to condemn them to an eternity apart from God. And so what we do need to do right here is uh, declare and affirm and conclude that baptism wasn't the goal for Jesus. Jesus would have left no one unbaptized if that was the goal. That doesn't mean that baptism is unimportant. That doesn't mean that baptism doesn't matter. But what it means is that baptism is a response. Baptism is a response to the cross and shouldn't be considered equal to what was accomplished there. Baptism is a good and right and obedient response to all that God has commanded us through the person of Jesus, but to the cross of Christ and the salvation and redemption that was secured there for us, this is a response. Every believer, friends, every believer in Jesus Christ should be baptized by immersion, no exceptions, plain and simple. That's what the New Testament tells us. But you are not a believer because you are baptized. And if you're relying on your baptism, whether as an infant or as an adult, for the forgiveness of your sins and to save you, you should repent and trust Jesus exclusively. This highlights for us that Jesus' primary goal from day one is the cross. And we see that already here in chapter 4, again in as early as chapter 1. Jesus saw that the Pharisees' shenanigans would get in the way of his journey to the cross to do the real work that was set before him. Jesus couldn't have that, so he got up and he left. He got up and he leaves Judea. And he heads to Galilee. Again, this tells us the irreducible importance of the cross of Christ. For you and me, in the sense that our, his blood was shed by Jesus, that it covers our sin, but it also tells us the irreducible importance of the cross of Christ for our day-to-day -day lives. Because whatever you and I are tempted to believe is more important than the cross needs to be checked. Whatever you think should define your life other than the cross of Christ should be immediately put in subjection and brought back to its proper place. Friends, what are those things for you? What are the things that you're tempted to elevate to a place of equal importance to the cross of Christ? We all have. Or maybe, 
What are the things that right now your life in your life are crowding out? Crowding out the cross. So that this week you would give little to no thought to the cross of Christ at all. Maybe you think your children are the most important things and all your decisions should be made around them. Should be made around their desires, opportunities in their education, youth athletics, taking them on fun vacations, or never say no parenting. Consider your career. Maybe you think that your career is the most important thing. And so all your decisions are made and centered around a better position, better pay, etc. The career advancing opportunity came into your life tomorrow. Offering more money in a different state, some of you wouldn't think twice before taking it. Would you consider the cross and what implications it might have for a cross-country move, for uprooting your family, for leaving family behind, for leaving a community of faith behind? I could give more examples, but I think you get the idea. What are the things that you are tempted to put on an equal playing field or to elevate to a place of equal importance as the cross. Jesus' decision not to baptize and to leave Judea and a growing following showed that there was no thing more important than the cross and the death that he was going to die. Nothing was going to stop him from going there. Nothing was going to stop him from going to the cross for you and for me. And nothing should stop us from making it the center of our life and speech and action. Additionally, however, and I want to hopefully tie these two things together as we get through these verses, but these verses also show us that incredible truth that we led in with this morning and that one, one that's vitally important to our understanding about who Jesus is. And so that's the second thing I want you to see this morning. And really, it's just derived from verse 6. When Jesus is wearied as he is from his journey, he sits down beside the well. The point I want you to see is that Jesus is totally man. Jesus is totally man. Well, being totally God. And you, you, friends, you need this truth more than you know this morning. Trust me. You need it more than you know. Jesus got tired and he stopped to rest. And this indicates to us that Jesus wasn't just masquerading as a man. Jesus wasn't just pretending to be man. Jesus is totally God and totally man. And so like you and me, when he got tired, he stopped to rest. At the beginning of this last week, Rebecca and I had the privilege to attend a pastor's and wives retreat um, in Colorado. And one, one, uh, one afternoon, we went up the mountain, like on the ski lift um, or the gondola or whatever it's called, up to like 11,000 feet. Um, and I had Sersha in the baby wrap on my front, and I had a backpack with all the necessary things for a baby on my back. Um, and uh, I haven't been to the gym in quite a while. I think I admitted that earlier. But like a, a few years, uh, like a few years ago would have been the last time I made it to the gym. And I was out of breath pretty regularly at 11,000 feet. 
um, spending time at that altitude is pretty humbling because like, I like to hike and I can kind of just go out and just do it and sort of beast mode through it, um, push through and get to where I want to go. Um, but I couldn't do that. I was like hands on my knees, like, and I know I was carrying, well, 11 maybe ish extra pounds, which isn't, which actually I probably shouldn't have admitted that, but, but up there I was done. It was just like a mile in and we're like, should we do more? I'm like, I don't know. Not really. Jesus in his journey, although this is much closer to sea level, um, got tired and rested. Jesus got tired on his journey and he stopped to rest. And again, this points us directly to Jesus' humanity. The fact that he is totally man. We sympathize. I want you to see two things. And one is we're going to use as sort of our conclusion this morning. And then one is the lead into the Lord's Supper. I want you to see two things here this morning about Jesus' humanity. Again, the first that's going to function as our conclusion is that Jesus knows what it's like to be tired. Jesus knows what it's like, to, like you and me. Jesus knows what it's like to be tired. And then the second, again, to lead us into the Lord's table, is that Jesus' humanity is absolutely necessary to what is accomplished on the cross. Jesus' humanity is absolutely necessary to what was accomplished on the cross. We're going to unpack those two things. So the first, again, sort of in conclusion, drawing a conclusion from this text, understanding that the gospel, uh, the cross of Christ is irreducibly important and that Jesus Christ is totally man. Those two things, those two ideas, drawing a conclusion from this text, we can say together that since Jesus is totally man, he knows what it's like to be tired. Now, I I want you to stop for a second. Because I, I think I think that this morning I wouldn't be going out on a limb and I'd be willing to bet that you, at least in some area of your life, are feeling tired. At least in some area of your life, you are feeling tired this morning. You're worn down. You're beaten up. I don't like to admit it personally because like I said earlier, I sort of like to push through and ignore my limits. That's my bent. I don't, I'm not proud of it, but we've all got places in our lives when we take a, an assessment. We've got places in our lives where we're weary from the journey. There are so many things, so many areas. Maybe it's a coworker, or your boss who's been wearing you out. I worked in the business world before moving to Jamestown. It was tiring. Every emergency seemed to happen on the weekend. Every, uh, every time I sat down to dinner, I would get a phone call. It was tiring. You know what I mean. Maybe you're the parent of young kids. You're not crazy, I promise you, if you want to be taking a nap right now. Your kids have endless energy. They're always going. And whether a blessing from the Lord, and you may affirm that with joy, you may still be tired. Maybe you're in the heart of conflict with your spouse, and on the way over here, 
to church this morning, you had a, a moment. You woke up, said something that you thought was taken the wrong way. Your spouse said, why did you use that tone? You yelled at each other on the way to church. Or maybe you just gave each other the silent treatment, which is equally as exhausting. Again, I could go on here. Maybe you've been poor health. Maybe you're tired from all the extra steps you've had to take this last year during a pandemic year just to get the most basic things done. Maybe you've felt like you've lost a lot recently. Maybe you just struggled to get good sleep. Jesus, hear this this morning. Jesus is totally man. Jesus got tired on his journey and he stopped to rest. Do you need to stop and rest this morning? Here's what I don't mean by that. And here's what the Bible doesn't mean by stop to rest. In our culture, rest has come to mean being idle or being an escapist. This is not biblical rest. Escapism is the idea that we need to get away from the things that wear us down. Like work, kids, spouse, like the loss I've experienced, or just the things in life that are hard. But I want to highlight for you this morning that this rest that Jesus engages in here at Jacob's Well is different. There's, there's no escape here. There's no setting aside the goal. But instead, there's a recovering and a refocusing of energy to move closer to accomplishing the task set before him, which for him was the cross. You probably need to stop and rest this morning, but not by escaping reality, but by ensuring or to ensure that you have a Christ-like perspective on reality. Let me say that again. You don't need to escape reality. You need the margin to ensure that you have a Christ-like perspective on reality. You may need a 24-hour break from your kids. Let the grandparents watch them for a bit. But not to escape them, but to recover and refocus your energy to get on the same page with your spouse so that you can raise them in a God-fearing home that takes its cues from the cross. You may need to be in a separate room from your spouse after a conflict, not to escape that person, but to refocus and examine your heart for sin and your contribution to the conflict and remember the marriage covenant you entered into with that person to think about it all in light of the cross. You may need to take a vacation, not to escape, so that you can gain a Christ-like perspective on recent loss or heartache you've experienced or just the troubles and difficulties of this world. Again, biblically, rest, there we could go a million places with this, but rest is designed. Rest is designed by God not to escape, to gain a clear Christ-like perspective in order that we might follow the commands of God and to remember what He has done for us through Jesus' sacrificial death. God, in His infinite wisdom, 
knows what you need. He knows your frame. He knows your limits. Not just because he knows, because he experienced it. Jesus was totally man and took a moment to rest on his journey. Friends, you cannot reduce the importance of the cross of Christ. All of history is defined by it. And because we have limits, we need to stop and rest on this journey through this world. Not to escape it, to re-energize, to refocus, to regroup, so that we might live lives that are always proclaiming the gospel. So what that does for us is it brings us to the Lord's table this morning. I want to draw what we've just talked into, into this time together. Uh, Kelly read earlier from Hebrews chapter 4, and in verse 15, uh, the author writes, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus stopped to rest. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Friends, Jesus had to be totally man for the cross to matter. God in his infinite wisdom knew this. The cross is irreducibly important in part because Jesus was totally man. A sinless sacrifice. The penalty of sin. Jesus is that sinless sacrifice for you and me. Jesus sympathizes with your weakness. Where you feel tired and worn out this morning, Jesus knows. Jesus knows. He was tempted like you and I are. In our tiredness, never am I as an individual more prone to sin than when I'm exhausted. I would say it's probably similar for you. Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows where you're prone to sin. He was tempted there, yet without sin. This simply wouldn't matter if he didn't take on the real flesh and had real blood running through his veins. And that real flesh was pierced for you and me. And that real blood was poured out for you and me on the cross. And that's what we come to acknowledge here this morning at the table. We come to acknowledge the broken body and the shed blood that was rightfully ours. The, the cross is irreducibly important because Jesus is totally man. The cross is irreducibly important because on it hanged real flesh and uh, was stained with real blood of a real man. Friends, we take the Lord's Supper here together regularly at Buffalo City Church. But if you're, and you're a Christian and you're visiting with us, we would like to invite you to participate with us. What I mean by that is if you're trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins exclusively, his work on the cross, come join us. But if you don't know what that means, just refrain. Take a moment to reflect on what you've heard this morning. I say this every week, but every time we celebrate, but if uh, you have kids with you, if they've made a credible profession of faith, invite them to come forward with you to receive the elements. If that profession is forthcoming, allow this time to be simply an opportunity to share the gospel with them. As the worship team comes forward to play, I'm going to invite you to come at any point throughout the next song as they play, as we pray. 
Grab the elements, take them when you're prepared in your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal, friends, right now, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what you have elevated in your own heart and in your own life to an equal position as the cross of Christ. What you have allowed to crowd out the cross of Christ so that you give it little to no thought throughout the week. And when the Holy Spirit reveals that to you, confess. Turn from that thing and rely on the strength that the Holy Spirit provides to properly order your life. Ask the Spirit of Christ to give you clarity in your life so that you would see fully the irreducible importance of the cross. And friends, I I want you to consider this morning that when we come to the Lord's table, this is an opportunity for true rest. Because it provides us with an opportunity, a, a real practical opportunity for us as God's people, not as an escape route, but rather it is designed to give us a Holy Spirit-guided moment together to reflect, to reorder, to reprioritize, to refocus our lives that we might live in light of the irreducible importance of the cross. On the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup. After saying, this is the cup and the new covenant of my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.